Welcome to another episode of the Reality of Obesity podcast from Obesity UK in collaboration with Johnson & Johnson. This series of podcasts delves into the major topics surrounding obesity. Our main aim is to empower and provide information to people living with obesity by raising awareness and unpacking the psychological factors and stigma associated with it. We'll be giving people a voice to help them gain access to the treatment that is right for them. I'm Sarah LeBrock and I'm your host this series. With me today, I have Professor Rebecca Poole and Dr. Stuart Flint. In our third episode, we will discuss the stigmas around obesity. So welcome to the podcast, Stuart and Rebecca. Thank you very much. Uh, To begin with, we'd love to hear a little bit more about each of you. So Rebecca, would you like to tell us a little bit about your background and work first, please? Sure. So I'm a professor of human development and family sciences at the University of Connecticut in the US. And that's where I'm also the Deputy Director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity. And um, I'm a psychologist by training and a researcher. And so for about 20 years or so now, I've been studying weight stigma and discrimination and bullying that uh, children and adults face because of their weight. And my research has studied this issue in, in a diverse societal settings like healthcare and schools and the media And a lot of our research looks at the impact of weight stigma on health, on health behaviors, on health outcomes, uh, as well as policy strategies to try to help really address weight-based discrimination and bullying. So thanks for having me here today. No, thank you very much, because we're very aware you're in a different time zone as well. So uh, we appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. Now over to you, Stuart. Would you like to tell us a little bit about you, your background and, and your work as well too, please? Yeah, sure. So I'm Dr. Stuart Flint. I'm Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Leeds. Um, My primary areas of interest have have always centered around both conscious and unconscious processes uh, related to behavior with a a key interest like uh, Rebecca uh, around weight stigma and discrimination, conducted uh, a variety of different pieces of work relating to the prevalence around of of stigma, of course, where stigma uh, is experienced across those different settings and and also uh, the impacts of of stigma. Over the last maybe five years or so, we've really focused our attention on um, how and in what ways stigma is um, evident in policies, campaigns, and um, how we can support Uh, national and as as well as local efforts to reduce stigma uh, across those different settings. Well, thank you very much. Both of you have got lots of experience of this. So I think it'll be great to understand kind of a little bit more and go into a bit more detail around weight stigma, because I think stigma is talked about a lot in the media, but actually, do we really know what it is? So, um, you know, what is weight stigma and how prevalent is it? Um, So generally, weight bias or stigma refers to negative attitudes and stereotypes towards people who have a higher body weight. And these stereotypes are are widespread in society, but they don't get challenged very often. And as a result, it leads to prejudice and unfair treatment and discrimination. And some of the most common weight-based stereotypes that we see in our society include views that people who have a higher weight are lazy or lacking in motivation or discipline or willpower. And and these kinds of stereotypes are really present in many different domains of living. So in the media, in the workplace, in schools, even in interpersonal relationships with family members and friends. Um, And to speak to the prevalence question that you had, you know, our, our research in the U.S., typically finds that about 40% of adults say that they have experienced some kind of weight stigma, whether it's in the form of 
teasing or unfair treatment or discrimination. And typically those prevalence rates increase with higher levels of obesity and they tend to be higher in women compared to men. People right across the weight spectrum do experience stigma uh, to different levels. And then, of course, there's different stereotypes about people with different body shapes and sizes. But when we see um, the most common uh, forms of stigma, it's typically directed towards people uh, of a higher rate, higher weight, um, people living with obesity. What I would also quickly mention is that um, it is really prevalent, as Rebecca said, um, and in some cases, you know, people will report daily experience of stigma and discrimination. So, you know, it really is very common. Yeah. And this was definitely something that was reflected in um, one of our earlier podcasts. So for in episode one, we talked to people living with obesity. And Natalie, for instance, shared that, you know, she hasn't told some of her friends and kind of colleagues, etc., that she's had weight loss surgery because she felt that the stigma attached to that would be too much and it wasn't something she wanted to to go through you know I think that's a really interesting one that you know she's done something for her for herself that she has felt is right but she doesn't feel like she can share that experience with people because of the fear of what they might say uh, you know it just yeah it's, it, it's quite sad that things like that have happened and then another one was Babs for instance talking about going to a restaurant and chairs not being suitable for her to sit on and kind of her experience of then having to just leave the restaurant because there wasn't anywhere for her to sit and you know as someone living with obesity myself you know I am probably haven't suffered weight stigma as much as some people but I have definitely experienced it in the workplace historically because I work um, in a sales environment so um, public facing um, and one of my bosses once said to me that you know he didn't he didn't know how I could sell a diabetes product looking the way I did. And um, yeah, that was that was nice feedback to get, really. Um, so it's, you know, I've had had my own kind of personal experience on this. Um, but kind of what sort of evidence um, about the impact of weight stigma and discrimination is there out there? Well, sh- shall I just pick up on the um, the different settings? Because as you mentioned, there's, there's many different settings. And, and Rebecca, of course, alluded to this in, in her previous answer. Um, now, the media clearly, uh, you know, one of the, the most common sources um, or vehicles within society where we see stigma. In many instances, um, there's, there's a very conscious, I think, effort to stigmatize people from the media. Um, so stereotypes, including, of course, laziness, uh, gluttony is probably the two most common stereotypes that we see in the media. But we also see many other stereotypes as well. Um, and that might include, for instance, lacking intelligence, having uh, less friends and um, being socially inept not as uh, not being as as attractive uh, or physically attractive or sexually attractive um so there's there's many different types of stereotypes that are, are perpetuated within in the media so the media are clearly one and also in in some instances the media also would suggest um that stigma can be beneficial which um, i think we'll talk about a bit later but um that's another message that we often uh, receive from the media and um, the other types of settings um so Re- rebecca's mentioned this and she may well talk a little bit more, more about that is uh, in education settings um, and so we have many young people children and young people who report experiences of bullying harassment victimization relating to weight uh, and weight related teasing is is extremely common we have workplaces and there's a lot of work or research around workplaces that's shown that people experience stigma from fellow employees, from managers. They may experience some stigma or discrimination in um, the recruitment process or even uh, promotions. So again, uh, a key setting. And maybe, maybe I'll give one more and pass on to Rebecca would be um, healthcare settings, of course, as well. And healthcare settings should really represent a safe environment that allows anybody, no matter what their background, to be able to 
access um, support and care uh, and to be able to speak freely and openly um, with a trusted professional, you know, without feeling like they're uh, going to be treated unfairly. Yeah, I would agree with that, all of these points. And I think the healthcare setting in particular is one that that's quite concerning. Um, you know, we, we know from lots of research that healthcare providers express the same kinds of negative weight-based stereotypes that we see in the general population. And they express these stereotypes toward their patients. And, and this can come across in the way that they communicate with patients, but also in terms of how much time they spend with patients and appointments. And how much health education they give their patients and what they attribute their problems to. And, and this can really lead to poor quality of health care. Um, it can even lead people to avoid seeking health care because many patients are aware of these negative biases or they have had experiences of stigma in the healthcare setting and they don't want to repeat those experiences. So they avoid future health care. And, and I think that's in a particularly a troubling finding that we need to be addressing. Um, so Stuart, I'm really glad that you brought up schools because you know what we've seen in our research is that by primary school, elementary school, many children are being teased and bullied about their weight. And this unfortunately continues throughout adolescence. Um, and these kinds of experiences take, take multiple forms. So we know that kids are being socially excluded from their peers because of their weight. They're being verbally teased and insulted. They're the target of cyberbullying. Um, they even experience physical aggression. Um, and this really has harmful consequences for their well-being. Um, and we know from our research that weight-based bullying is one of the most prevalent reasons that children are teased and bullied at school. So it's a very concerning problem and a very common problem. Yeah, and it's worth probably just picking up as well. Again, Rebecca's alluded to there is um, social media. Um, and certainly, you know, social media is something we've all been interacting with more over the probably the last decade or so. The younger people, you know, they're, they're using social media a lot more. They're able to access a lot more information. And there's so much out there that is detrimental in terms of the types of messages about body shape and size, about health-related behaviors, but also, um, I think, the idealization about certain body shapes and sizes, which inevitably also um, has an impact then in terms of what are perceived or the societal messages about what are the more undesirable body shapes and sizes, which in many instances in our society is uh, described as, as people with a higher weight status. And this has been something that I've picked up on recently, actually, interestingly. So I have a 22-month-year-old daughter and she started watching Peppa Pig. Okay, <laughs> don't judge me. Um, but I was watching one of those, or I was listening into one of those episodes one day and there was a comment around Daddy Pig and his big tummy and the fact that he had a big tummy because he ate too many cookies. Um, and it was a negative, you know, really a negative connotation around it. And I just thought, gosh, she's 22 months old. And this is the messaging that she's starting to get at that age. And I was actually quite horrified because I just didn't think it would start that young at all. But clearly it does, you know, um, and I'm quite concerned and kind of think, well, actually, what is safe for you to start showing, you know, your children and stuff? Because if this is kind of the kind of messaging in something like Peppa Pig, which I thought was very harmless, um, you know, it, yeah, that really concerns me. I think you're absolutely right. And these kinds of messages about body weight really infiltrate societal messages early on. And it's one of the reasons why you know, by, by preschool age, by three, researchers are already seeing the presence of, of weight-biased attitudes in, in these children at this young age. And, you know, it's exactly the kind of thing that you're talking about, the, these subtle messages that 
many of us don't even think to question or that just seems such a part of our regular daily lives that um, it becomes an automatic form of bias that many people get used to. Um, and, and those messages get repeated and they come from multiple sources and settings and they really set a foundation uh, for these kinds of attitudes. Agreed. And, and, and what we often see is that you know, many of the, uh, the media for younger people is almost a raising awareness of people's body shapes and sizes. And of course, we could think about, for instance, the the fat controller in um, in the Thomas the Tank Engine series and, and other, which are one about increasing awareness of body shapes and sizes. But what we also see, and I think this links to what Rebecca said around you know, younger people, particularly from uh, an age of around about three, where we know children are reporting perceptions of body shape and size, um, um, some of the stereotypes relating to weight status. Um, we do actually see a difference in the content of media that are very relevant to those stereotypes. So for for younger children, we often see the stereotypes around uh, being slow. Again, the gluttony and laziness is very much evident throughout into uh, primary school age children where we see stereotypes around um, lacking friends, being socially inept. Um, teenage years, we see more of the stereotypes around um, physical unattractiveness and sexual undesirability. And and so actually the stereotypes are almost age-related, which we see throughout the media, which, uh, you know, inevitably is not only impacting uh, the types of self-perceptions that people may have of themselves, um, but again, increasing their awareness of body shapes and sizes of their peers and other people. But So where do these start? That's a great question. And it's a very complex one. You know, weight bias stems from many different sources. But one of the, the things that is always present in societies that have weight bias are sociocultural values of thinness. And being thin has has come to symbolize very strong values in society. It symbolizes uh, discipline and hard work and attractiveness. And very quickly, uh, people perceive individuals who are not thin to be lacking in those characteristics. That if a person is not thin, it means they are not disciplined, they are not trying hard enough. There's also been some research, particularly coming out of North American society and kind of traditional views of individualism and the idea that if you work hard, you will be successful, but if you're not successful, it's your fault. And those kinds of views align very closely with weight stigma and beliefs about personal responsibility and controllability of body weight. So for example, the message that we see pervasively in the diet industry is that you can have whatever body you want. If you try the latest diet pill, the latest latest diet plan really reinforces the idea that the body is infinitely malleable, that you can change it to look however you want. When we know in reality from considerable science that That's not true at all. That body weight regulation is extremely complex. Losing weight is very difficult. Most people cannot sustain weight loss over time. And that has much more to do with the complexities of the biology of body weight regulation than it does with personal choice or willpower. And so, you know, these these kinds of views about personal responsibility, these values of thinness, these views of individualism, they all interplay together to really create the foundation of weight stigma, which then, as Stuart has, has mentioned, you know, get perpetuated throughout the media. And, and we don't see very many examples challenging these messages. And so they persist. And I think that's a good point there is, is the fact that 
you know, there's not many people pushing back. I would say over the last kind of 18 months to two years that there's been a bit more of that happening. But uh, yeah, before that, I think, you know, there's been very kind of little, little pushback. And it's something I'm quite passionate about myself is that I'm trying to to try and push back a lot more and get more people to do that. But it's going to take a long time, time, isn't it? You're right. And I think, you know, one of the consequences of there not being enough challenging of this is that many people who experience weight stigma then internalize it. They are aware of these weight-based stereotypes that exist in society and they begin to apply those stereotypes to themselves. So it's, it's kind of an internal process of blaming oneself for the stigma and their weight. And so beyond actually experiencing stigma, you know, this internalization becomes um, a real common problem for people. And, and this isn't so surprising when we think about the negative societal attitudes about weight and the lack of messages that, that challenge this. So internalization is a concern and it's something that is also related to um, negative health consequences. We also see, we've seen this quite a lot just before Christmas, um, you know, there was um, one of the morning uh, TV shows in, in the UK and they were asking people, can weight stigma be beneficial? Um, although they used the, the term fat shaming, but they're asking you, you know, can it be beneficial? Um, now, we emphatically know that typically, you know, weight stigma, experiences of weight stigma are not beneficial, but we still are asking these types of questions as if, you know, the, the, there is some kind of evidence behind this, um, as well as the lack of challenge. And I think that that's really what's, you know, what's causing a lot of the different, um, the issues that we're seeing in society, certainly in the UK, but elsewhere as well, for sure. So, so I think that's key. But what um, Rebecca also mentioned there is around that focus on individuals uh, or perceived um, individual control of weight status and that you can change your weight status very easily and very rapidly. And that clearly isn't the case. And, and that's the, the types of messages that we're ultimately sending out, as well as, of course, blame. Um, as soon as we start to describe something as, as uh, being able to, to be controlled individually, then ultimately we can start to assign blame to people as well. Um, and of course, that likewise is internalized. So people go on to, to, to blame themselves, self-blame um, about weight status. Absolutely. And I think an, an example of this recently actually has been something that James Corden has said himself. So now that he's a WW ambassador, um, but one of the statements I saw he put out was that he's doing it because he wants to become a better person. Um, and for me, straight away, I kind of thought, well, why does you changing kind of your weight or changing your body shape or size kind of make you a better person because you're a great person now, you know, whatever. You, and and it's been the same, I think, when we look at Adele, for instance, as well, you know, how much kind of media attention was there that she suddenly lost weight? Well, we all know Adele is an amazing singer, regardless of what, what size weight she is. So, um, you know, that's again where the media is is, is kind of portraying a certain stereotype of of, of something. And, that, and yeah, it, it does kind of concerned me that this continues to happen. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that again is is evidence of weight bias internalization at play. Certainly, um, you know, the comments from James Corden, but we've seen it from other people as well. Um, the, we're internalizing those messages that um, you know that a, a thinner body shape is is somehow better, or that you you know you've tried harder. The types of messages that we we mentioned earlier, um, and ultimately, the people who do not have a thin body shape and size are not trying as hard, and you know are not you know, celebrated to the same extent that thin people often receive in our society. And and that's where we see these um, these issues playing out within society. And I think, as I say, that is a good example of of somebody who's internalized some of those messages. And what we often see with, with some people who 
try to lose weight uh, or change their weight status is a perception that things will be different. Um, that you know, weight status um, is is certainly going to change um, opportunities, or that people are going to think about them differently, and and that often doesn't doesn't actually occur. And so, what people expect to, to change or to happen when uh, a weight status changes doesn't happen. And then, you know, that that kind of expectation or um, what they were hoping to to receive doesn't happen, and 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 that has negative consequences itself. The, this kind of visual image that so many people have in their mind of their life being completely different if they're at a different body weight. Um, it is so problematic and so misleading. And it also reminds me of something else you mentioned earlier, which is that one of the most harmful kind of societal messages or perceptions more accurately is the idea that somehow stigma or shame is going to motivate people to lose weight. And that's something that I've been hearing for years. And I think it's important to highlight just how much research evidence we have now that shows that weight stigma contributes to poor health it does not motivate weight loss. That in fact, it often leads to unhealthy eating behaviors and avoidance of physical activity. And over time, it actually predicts weight gain. Um, and, and I think that it's helpful to think about weight stigma as a public health issue itself, regardless of body weight, that stigma harms health. And we need to really stop and challenge societal messages that suggest otherwise, because it certainly is not an incentive or positive motivator. Agreed. And, and what it certainly is doing is preventing people from participating in society. Um, and what that ultimately translates into is something that's, that's threatening you know, those key values that we're trying to achieve in our society, those key values of equality, uh, diversity, inclusion, um, they're being threatened by experiences of stigma and discrimination. Um, and this is stigma and discrimination about body shape and size, in whether it's workplaces or whether it's healthcare or other where these, these um, experiences play out. We're preventing people from ultimately having a fair contribution and participation in our society. And ultimately, surely we all want uh, fair participation in society. We all want to contribute to society. And we want to be treated uh, equally and fairly. You've touched upon there around obesity campaigns and the fact of, you know, um, public health um, and, and obesity campaigns in the past, you know, not particularly being brilliant. Kind of what are the key issues from these kind of campaigns that you have found to be, you know, to be critical of, to, to not, you know, not find helpful? And how do you think these can be better for people living with obesity? Well, I can speak to the work we've done here in the, the US and, and our research has studied how Americans react to public health messages and campaigns targeting obesity. And we've looked at some of the, the most popular campaigns that were disseminated here, which focus on things like weight loss or portion sizes of foods or sugary drinks. And what we found is that when campaigns use stigmatizing language or images, that, that people really don't respond well to this. They react by feeling less motivated to adopt healthy behavior changes. They feel less confident in being able to make those changes. But on the other hand, when campaigns don't use stigmatizing language, when they don't use stigmatizing images, people react much more optimistically. And in fact, what we found is campaigns that kind of include health behavior change that don't mention body weight, and they focus on specific health behaviors that everybody can engage in regardless of their weight, these kinds of campaigns generate the highest levels of motivation for behavior change. We want everybody to be eating nutritious foods, engaging in physical activity, drinking water instead of sugary drinks. Those are messages that everyone needs to hear, not just people who have obesity. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point there around focusing on health-related behaviours. Um, certainly here, we we see something quite similar, I think, Rebecca, in that uh, you know campaigns are very much focused on uh, weight as an outcome uh, rather than focused on health behaviours. And, and for you know that reason, you know we have many people who uh, you know who don't respond positively to these types of campaigns. Um, what we certainly see is is messages that ultimately. Uh, again, focus on individual behaviour, um, which of course can contribute to the to blame of of different uh, different people. Uh, we see that quite a lot in the UK, and they're all very much framed in a in a very negative fashion. So, um, and, and some of the work that we've been doing has really looked at the framing of campaigns relating to obesity compared to framings of, of campaigns on other health related um, conditions. So, you know, one of the examples which we've looked at quite a lot in, in the recent um, uh, years is campaigns and policies relating to cancer, for instance. And what we ultimately see there is that those campaigns are framed in a much more optimistic fashion. We see um, that ultimately we're trying to transcend feelings of hope to people. Um, you know, and, and, and when we compare that to the campaigns on obesity, we see that the framing is, is much more about pessimism and fear and driving anxiety. And if we think about behavior change, well, certainly optimism and hope is a much better way of engaging and, and motivating people compared to pessimism and fear. Uh, and I think when we look at the framing of, of health conditions, we can really see the difference in terms of people's approach or policymakers' approach to um, obesity-related campaigns and, and policies. And, and much of that, of course, is ingrained. Much of that is unconscious. Um, I don't for one second believe that policymakers or you know, healthcare professionals are developing uh, you know, policies uh, intentionally to target obesity in a different way. But what we do see ultimately is that, that is playing out, um, you know, the, the kind of underlying uh, ingrained stigma that's evident in our society is being seen in the way that we, uh, we talk about the narrative that's used in and around obesity, whether that's, as I say, policies, campaigns, um, but even, of course, in the media to many aspects as well. That kind of leads on nicely to kind of how that messaging has been more recently. So around the pandemic, I mean, you know, my personally, I found this quite distressing at times, you know, the fact that they're highlighting people living with obesity, you know, as being such a higher risk and how, you know, people have let themselves get to this and it's their fault. And, you know, that kind of messaging that we all know is out there. Um, but how do you both feel like it's been portrayed in the media? Yeah, I agree with you. I have I have several concerns about this. Um, you know, one concern is just to see how obesity is being portrayed throughout the pandemic. And particularly, we keep talking about media, but back to social media again, there have been numerous memes surfacing throughout the pandemic about COVID-related weight gain and, you know, insensitivity to the, the real struggles and challenges that people are facing with eating behaviors during this time period. Um, we've actually published some recent longitudinal research, which found that people who experienced weight stigma, they're more likely to experience emotional distress. So we know that stigma is playing a role in people's health during this time period. But I also think we need to play, pay attention to the role of weight stigma during this pandemic in other ways as well. So for example, if, it's, if, if there are these links between obesity and risk of complications for COVID, this gets concerning when we know how much stigma there is in healthcare. So for example, even before the pandemic started, we know that people with higher weight may be avoiding or delaying healthcare because of weight stigma. So if this is also happening for people of higher weight when experiencing COVID symptoms or they are afraid to go to the doctor because they're, they anticipate being stigmatized, you know, this has very concerning implications for their symptoms, for their treatment, for their 
if they're if they're not getting that care. So there are lots of reasons I think that we need to be paying attention to weight stigma during the pandemic. We need a lot more research as well to really be assessing the impact that that it's having on people who may be vulnerable during this time. I know, Stuart, you've been doing some work around this, haven't you? Specifically, kind of the vulnerable groups around COVID. Etc. Yeah, well, so we've certainly, as as, as uh, Rebecca's mentioned, we've certainly seen a steady undertone of stigma in the media, in media betrayal. Um, that's intensified in in certain elements of the pandemic, which we've seen in the UK. So, uh, when Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister, um, was diagnosed with with COVID, and of course, the, a lot of the, the the rhetoric that came out in and around that was that you know his uh, more severe symptoms and experience of of COVID. Uh, did did uh, end up going to hospital um, and was treated there um, was because of his weight status, and that has been described as um, the reason for this this kind of new kickstart of a of a campaign in and around obesity. Um, but certainly throughout that whole process, we've ultimately seen you know again that kind of blame towards people uh, living with obesity as almost putting themselves at greater risk. And some of the work that we've done looking at uh, vulnerable groups or defined as vulnerable groups by the UK government. So that includes people living with obesity, but also uh, people with diabetes, uh, with coronary heart disease and other, again, whilst to a different uh, level, certainly less than obesity, we have also seen uh, an undertone of blame uh, attached to these different groups as being at a, at a higher risk because of you know, a health condition, underlying health condition that increased their risk of illness and, and potentially death. And just picking on up on your point, um, Rebecca, about people, you know, not accessing healthcare, you know, historically because of stigma. Um, this is my concern around um, the future with the vaccine, for instance. So in the UK, um, people with a BMI over 40 are being um, hi- highlighted as being kind of a, a moderate risk. And so therefore will fit in the prioritisation criteria before the age um, kind of brackets kick in. I know that lots of people are hearing conversations from people living with obesity. There's, there's this element of, well, I don't deserve to have this before someone who's uh, older than me or I don't deserve that. You know, that that kind of messaging is coming through. But also the fact that they haven't potentially been to see a doctor or a healthcare professional for a long period of time will mean that they don't have their weight recorded and therefore they won't be invited for the vaccine when they should be. They, you know, they are in a high risk group for a reason. So therefore they need to be protected and therefore need access to this vaccine. And, and it's kind of like, you know, how do we get that messaging across to people to say, you do deserve this, you are worthy of this, and please make sure that your weight is recorded and you can get called, you know, at the appropriate time for your vaccine. Yeah. I mean, you've just highlighted several ways in which weight stigma is so harmful, right? If we think about just the not wanting to get vaccinated because they don't deserve it, that's that's a really, I think poignant example of how strong internalization is and self-blame and how that can really have direct implications for health. So I completely agree with you. We need messaging that is supportive and empowering to people, particularly during this pandemic. Um, We need to make sure that messages are not reinforcing individual blame or fault. Um, and, And it's a challenge because it's just the messages that people have heard for so long, right? And, and, and so this is a particularly critical time where those messages need to be challenged. Yeah, as, Re- as Rebecca said there, it's, it's a great example of uh, internalization of weight bias. And, and that's been clearly evident during the pandemic. Um, but I think previous to this as well, uh, we do know that people living with obesity, you know, feel like they're, uh, they're not worthy of healthcare treatment and other. And that's one of the reasons why maybe um, some people aren't seeking healthcare support when uh, when required. 
Um, and you know, you have to you know put yourself in in people's shoes. I mean, how many times can you be told you're a burden on society? Uh, because ultimately, that's the types of messages that people are receiving. So naturally, we will start to internalize those types of messages. And of course, you know, um, where relevant, we'll direct those um, those negative attitudes towards ourselves. And I think that brings us quite nicely onto kind of, you know, the next part of, of what I'd like to talk about is kind of how how can we reduce weight stigma? I mean, from my perspective, we need big changes. We're, we're trying to shift societal attitudes that have been ingrained for a very long time. And so for me, I think policy is key. Um, you know, here in the United States, some states are trying to pass laws to make it illegal to discriminate against people because of their weight. Uh, we have the state of Michigan that's had a law for some time, but other states like Massachusetts are trying to do the same thing. Now, this is a, a long and slow process. I've been testifying at these hearings for many years. But um, we've been doing national studies here in the U.S., and we see a lot of public support for laws that would essentially make it illegal. Um, to discriminate on the basis of weight. And this comes into play in a couple of ways. Some policies uh, would involve adding body weight as a protected category in existing human rights or civil rights laws. But other policies could make it illegal for things like weight discrimination, specifically in the workplace, which would make it illegal for employers to refuse to hire someone because of their weight. Um, so I think policy is very important and it's not only important for adults, but it's also important for children. So as we were kind of talking about earlier, uh, weight-based bullying is a, a very big problem. It's very prevalent and it often gets ignored in school-based anti-bullying policies here in the U.S. So here in the States, every school district across the country has an anti-bullying policy, but these policies really vary considerably in terms of how comprehensive they are. So for example, some policies will really list a lot of different characteristics that place children at risk for bullying, like race or ethnicity or sexual orientation, whereas others don't. And what we know is when schools have more comprehensive policies that list these characteristics, they have lower rates of bullying. So what's concerning is that body weight is often not even mentioned at all, even though it's one of the most common ways that, that kids are bullied. So there's a clear need to strengthen these policies. And, and our work is showing that there is a lot of support to do this. So I think there's a recognition that it's a problem. And I think there's a, an interest um, and a readiness for policy change to happen. Yeah, I totally agree with Rebecca. Um, policy change is clearly needed. I think we're, we're, we're slightly behind in terms of uh, movement around, uh, I think, national uh, governments to uh, enact policies that um, would support such a change. But we're certainly moving in that direction for sure. Uh, the work that we've seen in, in parliaments, um, you know, we really are talking about weight stigma and discrimination at the top table now, which I think has, has been a, a, you know, a big achievement over the last few years. Um, but as Rebecca's mentioned, policies around workplaces, schools, I think, can have a um, you know, major impact. Um, we do need change right across society. Uh, and probably one of the other areas I would suggest that we need change is around media portrayal. We've talked about that quite a few times today, but it's so um, accessible that um, you know, media portrayal of obesity uh, or weight more generally, actually, right across the spectrum, you know, changing the portrayal, um, changing uh, and reducing stereotypes that are, are evident in media portrayal, I think can have a major impact. And so what we really want to see is media authorities, um, journalists, societies, and other 
you know, engaging on this topic because it's really impacting people. And, and ultimately, we want journalists to be engaged on those current affairs. And this really is a current affair and it's impacting people. And, and you know, media can, can play a, a key role here. Um, certainly, um, I think we're, we're all aware that media contribute very heavily to the development of stigmatizing attitudes, but can also be the key vehicle here in changing those. Um, and I think we've seen that in, you know, with, with other topics, um, stigma relating to HIV AIDS in the past, for instance, um, educating the population, raising awareness that HIV AIDS wasn't simply about sexual behavior or sexual activity that you may um, conceive uh, HIV uh, AIDS, but also blood transfusion um, through rape, passing on through uh, at birth, many different ways in which you may uh, may have HIV AIDS. And so the media can play a, a key role here in disseminating information about the complexity of weight status, weight gain, obesity, reduce blame, reduce, um, you know, some of those stereotypes and, and really, uh, you know, contribute very heavily to the changing of the narrative around weight status. I was just going to say one final area where I think we really do need change as well as healthcare. And we've talked about that several times already today as well. And, you know, we are seeing some examples of progress when it comes to addressing weight bias. There's, there's certainly been an increase in public awareness about weight stigma, especially in the past decade. And, you know, increasingly we are seeing groups that are calling out this problem and, and trying to prioritize efforts to address it. And one recent example that I think is worth highlighting is just that one from this past year in 2020, where more than 100 medical and scientific organizations around the world signed a pledge recognizing that weight stigma is a significant problem, that it causes significant harm, and that it needs to be addressed in multiple aspects of society, but especially including the healthcare setting. And, and I think that's really the first time that the international medical community is, is really speaking with one voice to condemn weight stigma. And I think that's an important step in, in really taking action to address this problem. Just going back to your point before, Rebecca, around this um, whole piece around kind of um, the legislation around kind of body shape and size, et cetera. I agree. Like, I definitely think it's something I think would be a positive step. But the, the question I kind of have is how do you measure that, though? Because because it's such a visual thing. So, you know, someone work, walks in for an interview or and you straight away, you know, within how many, I don't, I don't know how many seconds it is, but I'm sure there's a set time. You You already make that kind of first impression that kind of, you know, your own internalized messaging around that person. Like, how do you measure then that actually the rest of the interview isn't then completely skewed because of that? Um, and therefore you find other reasons why they're not getting a job, but actually ultimately it's down to because of the way that they look, you know, how do we measure that? Well, you know, this is this is an issue really for many forms of stigma. So if someone enters a job interview and the person decides that based on their race or ethnicity or their gender or their age, that they don't want to hire them, the same problem occurs. Um, so, you know, I think that having passing policies that formally state you cannot refuse to hire someone who is as or more qualified than someone else uh, just because of their body weight, you know, sets a precedent. It also means that job applicants who feel like they've been wrongly, you know, dismissed or not considered an avenue for having a voice to pursue a challenge. Whereas right now that just doesn't exist. You know, we, we hear in our studies, many people saying, you know, I, it's because of my weight. I was the most qualified person there. I have so much more experience. As soon as they saw me, they made their decision. Um, you know, right now there's no avenue to pursue that. So having legislation in place will allow that to come forward. Now, how do we document this? You're right. But 
you know, that's not happening with race or ethnicity or gender, you know, all these other stigmatizing attributes that, you know, you know, HR is not going to say, well, we didn't consider this person because of their race or ethnicity, right? None of this is going to get tracked or recorded. So you're right. It's, this is why battling stigma is so challenging um, because it sometimes comes down to one person's account versus another's. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why policies are so important to really set the tone for what is appropriate and what is not going to be tolerated. I think policies are important. But what's also important is um, ensuring that there are appropriate training for people and training for those different in- instances within, you know, within a workplace where people may be making decisions about other people, whether it's decisions on uh, recruitment or promotions and so on. You know, are we adequately training people around bias, you know, the different types of biases, but also how to be able to recognize when their bias may be impacting their decision making? Because we may well be um, making decisions or behaving in ways, um, not because we're intending to be biased towards people, but because we have these unconscious biases. Um, so what can we do about that? Certainly what we can do is try to recognize the times within a, a workplace or within another setting where biases may be impacting our judgments um, and take steps to try and reduce or uh, avoid those biases. So some of that might be, for instance, um, if we took a, an interview setting, you know, um, ensuring that other people are also assessing a candidate. So you know, we can, you know, we can consider, for instance, is this truly my judgment of this candidate, you know, or have I made a, uh, an unconscious bias towards this person? And I can look at the judgments and the, the kind of decision making of other people, for instance, um, because we can't always change our unconscious biases and certainly not rapidly. Um, but there are things that we can do very quickly to, to check whether bias is impacting our, our decision making. I think another thing that I find really interesting is that this kind of obsession that the media have and kind of healthcare professionals to some extent actually around it's all about weight loss and that we're looking for that transformation and we congratulate people when we see that but uh, but but actually that isn't reality because like like we've talked about before the evidence shows us that most people will put that weight back on um and then it's that messaging that they then get of, of them feeling like a failure and it all going wrong and they've not had enough willpower but because we focus on weight loss as being that thing that we're striving for constantly that's why people are constantly going on this like kind of circle of trying to get there again and again and again. And I know personally, you know, I've spent years trying to do that. And probably even though I know what I know, still really there's a bit of me that still wants to do that because I feel like that's what I should be trying to do because of the way that the messaging's out there. And even kind of some to some extent, the policies in the UK around, you know, um, the NHS, it's you look for a measure is how much weight have they lost in a 12 week period. And for me, it's those messaging and those kind of um, p- procedures that need to change as well. Completely agree with you. And I and I think that this speaks to the, the power of these, these societal values of thinness that we were talking about earlier. You know, it's unlikely that these kinds of messages will change dramatically if we don't really question the the broader values that we're placing on thinness. And, you know, the focus on weight loss will probably be pretty persistent. And I think, you know, this also always makes me worry too about children and adolescents who are being exposed to these messages. You know, they are bombarded with messages that their their weight, their physical appearance is what gives them value. And you know, those are messages that are so uh, damaging. And what the messages that we want children to be hearing is that regardless of what your physical appearance is, that, that that doesn't matter. But what matters are 
It's your character, your kindness, your contributions to society, your talents, how you treat other people. You know, those are the values that, that need to be elevated in the messaging that are currently just not there enough to combat this. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and we have seen in some research where, you know, younger people were placing higher value on body shape and size than on you know, other elements of life, including, for instance, educational outcomes. Um, so that preoccupation and focus on weight status that's evident in society is, is being reported by young people. Um, and so the whole messaging around weight status uh, and weight loss, of course, um, you know, is, is really something that needs to be addressed in our society. And, and changes actually uh, in, in well-being uh, over a period of time um, can have a much greater impact on people compared to weight loss, for instance. You know, so you know, by focusing on those, focusing on you know, what, what can we do potentially to uh, shift the physical activity behavior, for instance, you know, those are the things that I think are, are much better to focus on and, and much more engaging and motivating. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on that one, Stuart, because I know, again, just kind of taking my own experience of, you know, I have um, gone through periods where I've done really intense levels of um, phys- of activity um, over the time. But for me, the focus has always been up in doing that to lose weight, you know, so therefore, when I have been working and training really hard, and then I'm going on the scales, and I'm not losing weight, that has really demotivated me. Whereas actually, when I look at it now, and I think, if I'd have looked at, you know, thought differently and thought, right, I'm doing this because I want to be healthier. I want to be fitter. I want to be able to lift a heavier weight. I want to be able to run for a little bit longer or cycle for a little bit further and just change that framing rather than it being all about, I'm doing this to lose weight and I'm kind of punishing myself by going there and actually not enjoying it in any way, shape or form. I just think my whole experience of exercise would have been so very different, you know, Um, but it's because that messaging and even the personal trainers that I used to have would be weighing me saying, well, I don't understand why you're not losing weight, you know, rather than it being a focus on brilliant Sarah, you know, your, your VO2 max is much better now. You can, you can, you know, it it was always around weight um, and, and just kind of really instilling all those negative messaging I already had. And now someone that supposedly knows what they're talking about is telling me that I'm wrong and I'm doing something wrong. And, you know, and even questioning my eating, you know, kind of going, well, you must be eating wrong if this is not happening. That's where, like you say, it's so complex and there's so many different factors to this kind of coming in at all different points that stop you from then having that positive experience really yeah i would totally agree and, and ultimately is is as you just you're, you're saying there you know the negative experiences are not motivating you know and they you know causes a lot of anxiety so you know why would we want to keep going back and exposing ourselves to this kind of negative anxiety provoking situations you know focusing on more positive outcomes uh, you know, enjoyment around, you know, engaging in physical activity and different types of, of health-related behaviors are more likely to lead to longer-term, uh, you know, engagement and, and behavior change. So that's really what we should be focusing on. And um, as you said, you know, for many people, you know, uh, if we think about in the UK, it's estimated around about 4.5 million people are dieting every single day or, or, or other types of interventions to try and reduce weight status. Um, you know, many people you know, maybe dieting or, or or other, losing weight, regaining weight, and and that that constant cycle that people are going through and those experience of, um, you know, what are often termed as failures, you know, are very negative for people. And what we actually should be doing is celebrating some of the you know the positive elements, the successes, the things that people are enjoying. And again, as I've, as I've mentioned, that's what's going to lead to shifts in in terms of behaviour change, uh, and um, you know, going to motivate people more. 
And I think, Sarah, about all the things you were just saying and how different those experiences were if we lived in a society of support and empowerment rather than and stigma and self-blame. And, and it kind of gives us an indication of how far we need to go and, and really where we need to be. What, what I'd also say there, just speaking of what Rebecca said, is I think what we've ultimately lost in our society is, is empathy, empathy for, for other people and compassion. And ultimately, we know that those two you know, are, are critical in terms of you know, our togetherness as a society uh, and being able to support people, um, you know, ma- no matter what their background is in terms of society moving forward on many different agendas. And I think that you know, there's a lot of work that's, that is needed right across society, um, the different uh, vehicles within society can contribute to in terms of uh, increasing feelings of empathy and compassion. What do you think are the kind of the most important changes that can be made in the short term future? Well, you know, I think for me, fundamentally, this the bottom line is that we want people to be treated with dignity and respect, independent of whatever body size or body weight they have. And so whatever we can do to promote those kinds of messages, it might mean in our own lives, if we see something stigmatizing on social media, that we take that that few minutes to either educate our child about why that's wrong, or we post something to challenge that message on social media. You know, for every negative message we see, we need to provide a positive counter statement or counter action. And I think all of us can do that in our individual lives every day. And that's, that might seem like a small thing to start with. But when we think about a big problem like this, it all starts with, you know, how can we each individually contribute to a solution? Yeah, I totally agree. And all those different small changes that can be made can certainly lead to a much bigger effect. You know, we're thinking about workplaces or schools. You know, what's really required there is a whole culture shift. But those culture shifts happen when, you know, people are are willing to to take that step uh, to make those changes, to 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 challenge different types of messages. Um, but, you know, other people will come along with you. So, you know, where we can take those small steps, where I really think that we need to. And, um, and as I say, I think there's, there's many different areas within society that ultimately change is required. So, you know, certainly I think that there's many things that we can do on an individual level and no, no step is too small. You know, for, for some of us, there's, there's, there's different opportunities, but they will all contribute to, to ultimately our, our overall goal, which is to, to end weight stigma. So I just want to thank you. Thank you, um, Professor Rebecca Paul and Dr. Stuart Flint. It was a real pleasure to speak to you about the stigmas around obesity today. Um, and thank you to you for listening to the episode of the Reality of Obesity podcast with me, Sarah LeBrock. Next time, we'll be discussing the psychology of eating with Professor Marian Hetherington and Professor Jason Halford. Please subscribe, rate the podcast and give it a five-star review. It really helps people find us. And keep listening every Thursday morning for a new episode of the Reality of Obesity podcast.